Thank you for uh, joining me today on, on this call, Daniel. I'm very excited to meet you in person. I'm in this extremely boring and unhappiness-filled room, but it's the room that has the best audio for recordings <laughs> and for having sort of like nicer and a bit more easy, easy chat uh, together. And I was really excited to chat with you a little bit about your vision and experience of happiness. Um, you said in, in a previous interview that you have done that you are a fairly happy guy. Um, and I was really curious about you you saying that very few people um, say this when, when we ask, okay, how, how happy are you? What did it mean for you to, to say that? I don't know. I guess I like I, the way I kind of think of it is there's a little bit of a thermostat. <laughs> And um, we have a baseline on happiness, and I, I don't know why. I lucked out somehow. I'm not sure whether it's biological or uh, it's partly a function of the way I look at the world. And I've been blessed with a lot of great people in my life and a job I love. And um, uh, those two right there are a pretty, big, pretty good start towards mm -hmm. happiness. And is it something that you've sort of always thought about yourself that you are a fairly happy person or is it more something that has come as a realization for you maybe later on when you started to study happiness and, and life satisfaction? Yeah, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know what's the cause and what's the effect there, but um, it, it could be either one. I think maybe I was gravitated uh, <laughs> towards the question of what causes people to be happy or unhappy because I was, uh, but I've certainly learned a couple things along the way and I try to remind myself <laughs> from what we know from research and uh, that, you know, to keep a lid on my, for instance, expectations, which is what I talk about in the TED talk uh, and to, you know, seek out people uh, who uh, will bring greater joy in life, so. Mm -hmm. I find that something that a lot of people mention when I do, you know, those chat on, on happiness, that is the connection with people. How would you say that this has impacted your happiness throughout your life? You know, this sort of connection with people, the people that you are surrounded by. Well, I don't, I tell you, I've been a professor for now 32 years and one of the great joys of <laughs> is that uh, I get to work with people who are interested, who go to university because they are interested in um, in the topic that I get to talk about. And then I get to talk about something I'm interested in. <laughs> or, uh, you know, I'm teaching our, I've got to hang on here. We're going to have to start. Alarms keep going off. So I should, I'm sorry. <laughs> Again, I'm technologically incompetent, as my students would tell you. Uh, but I was saying that I was a professor and, uh, you know, one of the great parts of my job is people who are interested in what I have to say come to my class and then I get to spend, you know, time talking they're interested in. And the graduate students I'm very fortunate with because we bring these really smart, um, motivated kids from all over the United States to come here uh, and to take the program. I teach with three other faculty right in my little department within the psych department, which is about 16. A lot of really smart kids, and uh, then uh, we take credit for their success, <laughs> which is <laughs> funny because they're going to be successful no matter what. But it, you know, I'm surrounded with people who are just uh, you know interested in the same topic, and the job itself is wonderful. I mean, you know, I, I often joke that my job is to ask myself hard questions, and if I don't get the answer right. I guess I'll just have to give myself a good talking to because <laughs> I go back and ask another interesting question. It is a truly great job that I, and uh, I, this is one topic I've been a real advocate for years is job satisfaction. Started in this field is I was interested in job satisfaction uh, and how to make people's work lives more interesting. I mean, you spend more than a third of your waking hours mm. at work. How do we make jobs more interesting? And that led to the, you know, uh, not only uh, good, there's, there's good research out there about what makes a job interesting, but I became interested in this issue about why doesn't money make people happy? Mm. And, uh, and 
the my research really started with a guy named Fred Herzberg. Uh, I was a graduate student, his is graduate assistant, the University of Utah years ago, and he became pretty well known because he studied uh, job satisfaction and found that compensation or pay was much more likely to make employees unhappy than mm. happy. Uh, when you don't get enough money, you're pretty unhappy. Fact, <laughs> you, might, you might go on strike. You might sabotage the organization. You might walk out. You know, it's uh, being underpaid is a real problem. Uh, doesn't mm -hmm. turn out overpaid is a real problem. <laughs> uh, and that kind of uh, uh, made me very interested in this issue about the relationship between compensation and job satisfaction. But it has larger issues to uh, the amount of money we make and life satisfaction. It's mm -hmm. really not a different issue. I can definitely relate to that. And as much as sometimes, you know, I have felt proud of my own accomplishments. Also, when I have been working even this year with uh, people who've had their first TEDx talk and, you know, coaching them through that process. And then I see them on the stage and I see them succeed. I feel so proud for them and they feel very grateful for me. And I feel like, oh, you would have done this anyway, <laughs> even if I would not have been here. <laughs> Yeah. to like cheer you on because you're that kind of you know person would have made it and you would have found maybe someone else to help you through the you know this process and I realized I was way more satisfied and satisfied for a lot longer seeing you know as you mentioned students or other people succeeding in in something uh, that made them really happy so I can definitely relate also with <laughs> with with that part um, yeah. and you were touching up also on the topic of money which a lot of people discuss on the relation of you know money and happiness does it bring you um the access to to happiness or or not and you mentioned also this in your own TED, tedx talk that uh, beyond comfort is not really you know the, the main metric for for happiness and that usually we get you explained this very well with uh, the example of different houses and everything that we can buy or wish for. Um, so with this topic of sort of escalating expectations that we can have in life, what has been your strategy in your personal life? Do you just give up and have sort of uh, <laughs> think to yourself, okay, this is fine. I'm going to, you know, <laughs> want to buy wow. this and then this and then this. <laughs> or do you think, no, I'm going to fight this and I'm going to try to mitigate uh, sort of the escalations from this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, I, I have to constantly remind myself uh, because, uh, you know, you could, I could start shopping for hmm. something early in the day and uh, think, oh, I just need the most basic version of this thing. I don't know what it would be. Maybe a cordless drill or something, you know, I'll just get the Black & Decker. The <laughs> one. All I have to do is put a few screws into the wall. I should get that. But I start shopping and, you know, you go online and of course, when, when you're online, every store everywhere is now at your fingertips. So by the end of the day, I can be looking for a drill that's five times what I started with tell myself okay wait just let's dial it down a little bit let's step back now my wife is very good at this she does she is just not materialistic at all uh i don't know she also kind of keeps me in check and is very good <laughs> at prodding me when i start to let my taste escalate and think i need the fancier more expensive more the higher status product you know sometimes you pay more, you get more, you get a purple and will produce less headaches. In fact, right now we're shopping for a, uh, a dryer and uh, the prices are all over the place. And I was looking at this very expensive one. And uh, the, the only reason I would say I think this would be a good one to buy is because it would produce no headaches. It's because it's durable, <laughs> it will last a long time. And I think dryers are kind of a funny example of the very point I'm trying to make about expectations it's uh it's kind of like this with many of the products we buy for our homes the absence of a dryer, mm. broken dryer is very dissatisfying <laughs> right now it's more <laughs> of a to go hang clothes on the line or go to the laundromat 
and maybe installing that new dryer will be fun uh, and it will feel good for a day or two, but we become accustomed to that thing very quickly. <laughs> and in fact, a good dryer is one you never think about, right? You don't have to worry about it. It's like a furnace or a roof. When you get a new one, it feels good for a short amount of time, but ultimately you want to forget about it. Um, and I think a lot of our purchases are that way. You know, mm. it's exciting to get the new luxury purchase. It's exciting <laughs> to get the new car, but our expectations escalate. And once they do, they don't generally de-escalate as, as I mm. pointed out in the TED Talk. And I think that's the real problem is the escalating expectation. I'm going to ask sort of a personal question for my own uh, for my own gain, I guess, <laughs> here. But yeah. for example, recently, my uh, partner, his electrical toothbrush just died, let's say. And so he's been on the hunt for a new electrical toothbrush. So a little bit like your dryer, there is a wide, wide range of, <laughs> you know, different type of electrical toothbrush you can Fun. And now I have seen that there are some that are very advanced technologically, very expensive as well. And I also try to be a little bit maybe like your wife and uh, prevent him from having this sort of escalation on, on the, his expectation. Do you think your wife is doing this in a way that um, still keeps you happy and satisfied with your purchase? Because it's really hard also as either a partner or being surrounded by other people in life to not just be, you know, the kind of like <laughs> person's like, well, no, you shouldn't buy this. <laughs> right. No, she's very nice. And she knows that I've been talking about this issue for years. So all she has to do is just kind of nudge me and go, Dan, come on. <laughs> you don't, <laughs> you really need the $800 toothbrush or the toothpick. And <laughs> There's this guy, Barry Schwartz, at, um, I think he's at Swarthmore College, and he's done some great research on uh, the problem of having too many choices. Mm. Uh, uh, I, I forget the term he uses, something about the oppression of small decisions. Mm. So we let things like shopping for a toothbrush or an electric <laughs> brush take over a whole day when it shouldn't. <laughs> Because once you get it, you're going to become accustomed to it very quickly. And then you're going to move on to something else. So we think it's great to have all these choices for consumer mm. products. But in many ways, was, sometimes we just don't need that many. You know, there was a, there, there, a, de, a, year, a few years back, they deregulated um, electricity suppliers in the United States. So you could pick who gives you electricity. That's amazing. I'm like, I don't even understand how you could <laughs> not. I thought they produced it down there, down downtown on Third Avenue here. But apparently electricity doesn't work that way. And you could pick which utility you wanted. And mm -hmm. I was thinking, I do not want to pick the utility. That's something I never want to think about. I want there to be one company <laughs> I pay them and I'm happy. I don't need to choose between 20 others. I don't want to waste any of my uh, life selecting electric service. But it's kind of that it fits in with the same idea that, you know, a focus on status idea uh, items and more and more income leads to dissatisfaction, not only because our tastes escalate, but because then the world's open to us and we can buy mm. anything. And that is sometimes time wasted on something that won't produce real happiness. Yeah. Also uh, in a lot of countries here in Europe, there's also been the same sort of, way of opening for you know more diversity also with electricity as well and you feel like okay I have nothing to gain maybe if I get a new one that provides me electricity but it could go really wrong if I select <laughs> the <Right>. bad one <laughs> right <laughs> or, only bad things can happen yeah I get exactly you. so then you feel like okay I have to sort of mitigate the risk there's not so much happiness to gain from getting a new electricity provider but there's a lot to lose Have you experienced in your own life that there are some elements like this that really have been um, hindering your happiness, um, you know, like picking a new electricity providers, dealing with emails, um, things in, in your life that you feel like, okay, this is the opposite of, of happiness and there's no way I can turn this around with gratefulness well. that I'm happy with. <laughs> I'll use the dryer again. I went to the local place here in town and they didn't have what I wanted. Uh, and I knew going in 
that I'm I'm a sucker for this. Show me the more the nicer, fancier op, uh, 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 dryer with more options, and I'm likely to let my taste escalate and think I just wanted a basic dryer. You turn it on, and, it, and they're showing me ones that will steam and that will you know remove pad hair and that they're electronic and you can set them. And pretty soon I'm thinking, you know, that'd be really nice. So. I know that this is a problem, especially with options. Products are marketed. Uh, so that's why we always have a variety of option lines in uh, stores is so that the salesperson can move us up. Mm. We, we have three models or five models so that the, the salesperson can start talking about the lowest one, but say to you, you know what, with just a little more money, feature or this feature and again just a yeah, little more <laughs> and you get more. this amazing thing <laughs> and once i become accustomed to the idea that i really do need a dryer that exclusive that's really good at removing pet hair then <laughs> the new minimum right it's the one i have to have and anything less is would make me less happy so i'm just i try to be conscious of it but um uh, you know, I teach a class in consumer behavior, so I'm very, I'm still interested in the, mm -hmm. uh, in the process of how we sell people things. And uh, so I, you know, I, I, I do have to remind myself though. <laughs> so this would, you would say is one of the things that's sort of hinders your, or your happiness on the, maybe not daily basis, but generally in your, in your daily life. I could let it if I didn't. Yeah. You let it sleep too much. On the other hand, what are the things that you feel either every day or every week or generally in your life do bring you happiness or a little boost of happiness? Sure. It's, it's well, we know, researchers, you know, uh, know that uh, that opportunities to develop your competence, and I mean this in the sense of the word, uh, your abilities to manipulate the world and to um, and to take control of the world. Uh, autonomy, the ability to just have your own time and schedule and do what you want to do, and connections with other people. Ed DC and Richard Ryan have developed a really good theory on this, and they show that those are kind of the big three on happiness. Uh, one of the blessings of TED Talks is that they're, what, only 20 minutes, so people are very long. But one of the problems with TED Talks is you can't get into all the nuances. Um, can money buy happiness? Well, it, it, uh, it's actually more complicated than I make it mm -hmm. up to be. <laughs> so I just want to get across this idea that our ex expectations can escalate, and once they do, we're off to the races. <laughs> you know, there's just too many <laughs> things we'll want to buy. But we know, for instance, that uh, money can buy happiness, it, it, but if you have to spend it in a way that's not quite the obvious way that mm. you think. It isn't for it's for instance spending money on other people can mm. bring more joy than spending money on ourselves. The researchers have done studies where they actually give college students money and say either spend it on yourself or go spend it on somebody else, and then they ask them how they feel later. And the kids who spent money on somebody else were happier. Mm. Uh, spending money on a cause. Uh, not just a straight up donation, which is good, donating money to people who need it. Uh, to remove their suffering, to alleviate mm -hmm. their suffering, uh, will produce some happiness. But if you can really get involved in an organization where you're serving other people and you can donate and you can build that organization with money, um, then that can lead to happiness. Um, it's, it's just the contrast. Mm -hmm. People think I can buy, I can finally find happiness if I just buy this luxury car. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, as, as I've mentioned, once you get that luxury car, you become accustomed to the, the, all those features <laughs> that we now, even the status of it. When you buy a high status car, I'm told, <laughs> you uh, are thrilled by it uh, when you first get it, but then pretty soon you start looking around. So can money buy happiness? Uh, by buying a, a status car? The answer would be uh, no, well, or yes, but for not very long, and then that's quickly wears out. But if you're gonna spend money on cars, you'd probably be better off restoring cars. 
buying the thrift store and you got to learn a lot about cars and you got to learn about the history of the car and you got to learn about the mechanics and you get to fix it and you get to see it transform. You're better off to build a boat than buy one <laughs> because <laughs> you're active and you're learning and you're developing your competence. Um, even clothing, you know, there's people who want to buy the designer brands and they think, well, this will be it. I will finally have the status I really deserve. But if you use money to study design mm. or make clothes, you're more likely to find happiness. So money can use, be used. Uh, you know, what's, what's another example? Um, you can go on a beach vacation where you lay on the beach and enjoy the sun. And uh, Lord knows up here in Minnesota, that's <laughs> a good thing. If I were to go down to Belize or someplace and sit on the beach, I will feel good, but for a while, right? But I'm not really learning much. I'm not really helping other people. And don't get me wrong, that's important. If you're really stressed out in life and you need a time, some time away, it is very important to alleviate the suffering and that's what a beach vacation can do, right? You're feeling stressed, you're, you're, you're miserable. You go down there, you get away from the phone, you get away from people and you suddenly have less stress. Yes, not exactly. On the other hand, maybe you'll take a, a, a vacation and you'll go to one of these eco lodges. Um, years ago, we took students down to the uh, place on the Amazon. And the whole time you're learning, you're exposed to a whole new culture and a whole new way of life. And as part of the ecologic uh, activities, they took us out in the jungles and they talked about mm. the rainforest. Now that's a, that's money spent that led to happiness because it led to learning and a greater appreciation of the world. Um, you can collect art or you can paint. <laughs> expensive art and hang it on your wall and it feels great for a short amount of time or you can use that money to buy painting materials and to try mm -hmm. new so in some ways money can facilitate psychological growth and development and so then it can lead to happiness but just the mere accumulation of status objects and cash uh, uh won't do it mm -hmm. absolutely and i think you know the examples that you took really sort of showcase this balance of like, okay, you still need some money to have a minimum level of comfort that you can have access to certain things, but to a certain point, it's not really what's going to bring you. And you were mentioning, for example, clothing, and it really uh, made me think about, I think last year I bought a workshop to learn how to uh, make my own like t-shirt and to sue I think on a t-shirt or sew on a t-shirt yeah. <laughs> and I'm not really interested in clothing or design or anything like this and obviously if I would not have had the money to spend on this workshop when and I needed to spend it on groceries I would not have had access to that but then I felt so proud of like okay I have my own t-shirt that I made by myself <laughs> and now I <laughs> every time I wear it I feel like this is my t-shirt that I made <laughs> So it was a much different experience than if I go to a store and maybe I buy a super unique T-shirt that, you know, I have no relation to. So I do agree with you. Know, we do need some amount of, of money. And very recently, a few weeks ago, I was also on vacation with my dad and it was for his birthday. And I was so excited that we could take both his time and my time to go together to invite him on this trip. So, of course, you need to have some money if you're just, you know, right. having too many other things to to spend on for your necessities. You can do that. But for me, it was being used to travel a lot and to travel by myself. I felt this time, oh, no, I don't want to go by myself, even though I meet incredible people and incredible cultures. I felt, no, this time I want to share this with my dad. And he was so happy that we could share this moment. And, you know, as time goes on, you feel like, okay, those are real moments of like happiness and creating memories that will um, last for a long time. So I think your your examples really showcased well this balance of, of both. Um, you were mentioning as well also a little bit the difference between life satisfaction and happiness. How do you make the distinction as a researcher and maybe more as a personal uh, human being. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a complicated issue for academics, but of course, that's our job is to make things complicated. <laughs> uh, 
the <laughs> definition of happiness uh, depends on who you ask. Uh, mm. and fact, uh, some researchers are now starting to use the term subjective well-being. Mm. Uh, okay, how am I doing overall? Uh, but it's not clear. Uh, do some researchers measure the emotions mm. around happiness and other people think of happiness as very cerebral this i can sit back and think hmm how am i doing and I this was good a, <laughs> i add the goods and i add the bads and that's what it is so it's either is it very cognitive that mm. is to say very thoughtful cerebral or is it very emotional and frankly as researchers we haven't really separated those two out very well and really understood there's an organization here in the u.s called gallup and they're the world's holsters and they study employee satisfaction as well and they uh work with a number of really uh, uh top-notch researchers to develop a kind of worldwide measure of subjective well-being but to know how are people doing across uh, uh cultures so you know if we had a, a, a semester we could talk more about <laughs> <laughs> uh, kind of hard to say because it you know and the third issue is, is it mood? How am I feeling today? Mm. Mood is by definition, you know, that sort of up and down that you get that sort of energy level and a positive and negativity that you feel on a daily basis. And happiness isn't exactly mood plays into it. It's, it's just a bit more complicated. Mm. So when you say that you're a pretty happy guy, do you think about sort of the academic definitions of happiness or do you base it more on realistically you have good things in your life do you base it on worst. i'm feeling good today <laughs> no, i know what you mean but i'm the worst because i think about all those things you know because, <laughs> because uh objectively i can look back and go boy i've got it great you know i've got great mm. kids I've got a, a, a great wife i live in a very nice place i love the folks i work with and the students and and that's all very cerebral you know that's a very anybody would say that's mm. he's got a good setup he's got a good deal there uh on the other hand you know my mood will fluctuate a little bit and uh you know and it, it sometimes i do need to give myself a little talking to and say <laughs> come on you haven't got it that bad you know i mean one of the things we that we're all a bit guilty of is when we ask ourselves about how we're doing, say, with finances and with status, there is a strong temptation to look up, down, right? So uh, if we drive around, go up to the Twin Cities here, which is close by, we, we you know, you drive around, it's tempting to go look at the luxurious homes and the and you, you keep finding fancier and nicer ones. Like, <laughs> uh, what we don't do is look at how well we're doing compared to the less fortunate. Mm. If you only focus on the wealth and and high status, then you're always feeling in, inadequate. I don't have enough. There's not the same temptation to look at people who are less fortunate. In fact, most of us aren't very good at even understanding what the average person uh, uh, is like. You know, the students ask me, uh, how can you say that money won't buy happiness? I came I'm gonna make a lot of money and then I'm gonna be happy. And I said, if money would buy happiness, you would all be ecstatic, right? <laughs> On worldwide standards, these students- You're already are, rich. <laughs> you're already rich and why aren't you happy? You know, the, at the typical world, the median world income is $7,000 a year. Mm. Uh, these kids all make more than that. They pay more than that to come to school. So if money could buy happiness, they would be happy, right? Mm. It was just the amount of money you had, uh, but they're not necessarily happier than the average world citizen. Uh, so uh, there's just there just never seems to be enough is the problem when mm. you keep looking nicer and fancier and newer and you don't take a beat you don't take a moment to to look around and go wait a minute i'm doing okay here i mean one of the things i we try to take students on international trips every other year here is one of the things i really enjoy is that especially when we go to developing nations mm. they see oh i've got it pretty good here i'm i'm not worried about infant mortality so much i have clean water uh, I, I like that. And I try to remind them when we're there, like you, you're doing okay um, in terms of uh, this, uh, the material possessions, 
But notice that your happiness is not, you make a lot more money than them, but you're not necessarily happy visiting with in South Africa, say, or, uh, you know, uh, Ecuador or uh, uh, Vietnam. There is, so I really like that experience is to try to get them to dial down their expectations and realize that they're already good. So don't be unhappy. I mean, to me, the great crime is people who are, who have all this money and, and spend themselves into poverty. Mm. <laughs> spend themselves into owing money, into uh, feeling indebted to being behind on their taxes, on their bills. You can become unhappy by trying to spend your way into happiness. Um, so again, I, I, you know, I know it sounds like I'm finger wagging at it. <laughs> scold people about this because I'm pretty guilty of it. But I hope that my message to folks is just as a kind of gentle reminder that, you know, take a moment, look around, see what you got, you know. I find that it's hard to, yeah, to not necessarily express it to other people, but for them to realize where it's coming from, because I also talk a lot with sort of younger people and I tell them, you know what, when I was 25, I had achieved everything I thought I would want in my life. I lived in New York on Wall Street. I had a great salary, you know, like <laughs> had a great life. Oh, yeah, you know, that's that's great and that's amazing. And some of them of the new generation have realized that, oh, but probably you were working a lot and had no personal life and probably you were away from your family. And so that doesn't sound that great so kind of good for you but this is not the dream life so i'm like oh this is good some people are starting to rethink this but a lot of other people still think oh well then why were you not happy or why are you still not in new york in this you know big job with a big salary and i tell them because i forgot my dad's birthday that year i was there and i realized there's no amount of work um, and I'm not a doctor, I'm not saving patients or anything like that. So there's no amount of work that should make me be so caught up in my meetings and my emails that I forget that it's my dad's birthday and that I have no time, you know, with friends and family and for those real connections. Even when they hear that, they keep in their mind, oh, but you lived on Wall Street and you had a great life and, you know, if your parents are still alive, you can still spend time with them and you could do this, you could do that. So as long as they have not experienced it, I think there's some people who still see it as, oh, but if I had just that much more, I will be happy. I promise if I have this great job, I will be happy. Or if I can travel on, I don't know, business class, I will be happy. But I do find that some new new people also in the generation are rethinking a little bit um, this as well. I don't know how much is the difference between U.S. students and students, let's say, in Europe to generalize very much. Do you find that among your, your students is still very much, they're very motivated, we know, with traditional success paths and you know good job good career good money or that they're starting to rethink also a little bit about that yeah absolutely and i will confess uh, the students <laughs> in my program uh, uh, often go into management consulting psychology program so students work for the big consulting firms and consulting firms specializing in hr human resources uh, and frankly the salaries are good all the conversation to become around the salaries and I often get too focused on it and I want the students to succeed and <laughs> I want pushing them towards the highest paying jobs and I again have to take a beat and think well wait a minute none of those companies pay that amount of money without asking a lot in return don't do it if you worked on Wall Street you know if you worked in an investment bank you know the hours that they but they'll take a lot from you. Nobody's giving all this money away. Uh, and I try to encourage uh, students not to get caught up in jobs that pay well, but they, where they don't like what they're doing. They're doing. Um, you know, we call it sometimes the golden handcuffs. You can get locked into a job that pays so well that the idea of leaving it to where a lesser paying job is just un 
imaginable. And you did it. Good for you. Uh, that you know, pursue your dream because you know there, you met. I'm sure plenty of people on Wall Street who were making a lot of money, but were hated what they did. They that eight hours a day. Uh, and that, of course, is the real key is you got to find a job that you love doing. Uh, hopefully it pays well. I mean, that's mm. you want you want pay well and you but but really don't sacrifice doing the work that's enjoyable just so you can make a lot of money because you got to go to work every day and there will never be enough money anyway. So mm. do something you love and something you're passionate about. And I know there's this movement right now in the U.S. where everybody's trying to say, oh, these American kids, they don't, they, they think they're going to take over the world and get the best jobs and they want easy work and they want interesting work and they should be like their parents and tough it out and do the work. <laughs> People have been saying that forever. I mean, literally forever. The kids these days, you know, they don't want to work hard. There's always some new kids these days. <laughs> really funny. I, I was looking... I looked at some, there's some research right now of, of, about people saying students these days are, are more willing to, uh, are more willing to, you know, forego a little bit of compensation so that they get a job they like. Mm. And I looked, happened to look back in my lecture notes from 30 years ago, <laughs> it was exactly the same point. Really? They only want to, you know, do some you know meaningful work and they don't really want to work hard they, it's like it's the same thing mm -hmm. we've been hearing the same story people you know they want compensation they want wealth but they also want something interesting to do and they should get mm -hmm. something to do uh, again one of my focuses over the years really has been on how you make jobs more interesting so that mm -hmm. people spending the better part of their again the better part of their lives at work why not be doing something they love doing um that's something that just pays really well. Yeah, but and I think it's it's a good balance also to strike. And when I share, for example, my story with other people, I try also to be very honest that the reason also I am where I am today is also because I have done certain things in the past. So it's not necessarily, oh, just follow your passion and whatever, do whatever you want and you will find a path. Um, for me, it's also I know I have some opportunities today because I have worked in certain companies in the past that give me credibility. That also there are things that I have been able to do because I've had this salary or their savings and so on. So I don't want to encourage people to just think, oh, you know, working for a company is bad or you shouldn't work anything at all that you know you don't really want to do or that is not necessarily your passion i also think when we're young we don't necessarily know what is our, our passion sometimes yeah, that's for sure, yeah. <laughs> well i will tell the students you know again, i try to take uh, you know uh, modify it a little bit because i say to them look just go take this job for a couple years you know yeah. go get so, so that you you'll get a ton of experience. You'll work very, very hard. It'll be like two years of really well-paid college that will allow you then to choose to work in the organization. Mm. You're going to have to work hard, that's for sure. Uh, but, you know, working hard for a few years to get what you want is fine. Working your entire life yeah. in hopes later you'll find happiness is not a good thing. For sure. And I think, yeah, this is a great, great advice. And to just have this idea in your mind that, okay, this is a conscious choice and maybe you know right now i'm just taking this job for sort of you know the experience and money aspects of it maybe it's not my <laughs> passion but you know it serves maybe a longer uh vision or longer purpose so i think that's you know relevant to have in mind because it is also difficult to immediately just find something that maybe you're super passionate about and can bring you also sort of somewhat the comfort that you would want to uh to have happiness um do you have one memory it can be personal it can be professional um of one of the happiest moments either in your life in your career i you know i've always had a hard time answering that mm -hmm. question the one happiest moment it doesn't need to be one I, happiest I, I, it can just be one happy moment so many so many that's that's really good news <laughs> you know there's uh oh, huh i i hmm. 
there, right outside my outside that door, there's a there's kind of a lounge area where the students hang out. Okay. And so my doors often open, and there's been many times when I'm sitting in here working on something and I hear them talking, uh, and because our students like take all their classes together and they come from all over the U.S., they get to know each other really well. Mm -hmm. One of the great joys is listening to their interests and their <laughs> banter and the way they treat each other and uh you know sometimes i just find myself uh thinking i boy i'm one of the luckiest people there is because mm -hmm. i get be part of their lives and, and we're you know, we're a very friendly bunch so they're in and out of our offices all the time but i often think about that i get to you know be part of that group and and help build this relationships and sets of connections to people uh we're planning a big uh a reunion of students over the last 30 years and uh we we had one i don't know 20 years ago and boy it's just it's just delightful to be there and be able to see all the people who come together and then to find out how they are connected to each other mm -hmm. once they hear from different years they often work together or they switch jobs and they become their own social network and that is a great joy for me is seeing their success and the relationships they've built and that network of friends. Um, of course, there's time with my kids, you know, where there's great moments. Uh, uh, but, you know, th that's not always uh, what everybody thinks it's going to be either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there's, you know, extremely proud moments of them. Uh, and I think it's that social stuff. I've won a few awards here and there, and uh, they feel great for a, a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. uh, but the uh, but it's those connections with people and the the times when I'm learning something really interesting. You mm -hmm. know, we get in the weeds on some topic where we're collecting data, where where I'm really doing the work that you know an academic is supposed to do. Uh, not only do I, I enjoy being in the classroom, absolutely, I love that, uh, but that, you know, the time to do research and put ideas together and work hard on writing, and um, that's also a great pleasure for me. Mm -hmm. From from okay, listening to you, it's... Well, okay, of course, when the day I was married. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in trouble. Well, I've seen great. a lot of my friends getting married recently. And while I know it's supposed to be the best day ever, it also seems like an extremely stressful day. <laughs> oh my gosh, are you right? How many times on that, uh, the groom's dinner the night before, is there some sort of major blowout with people or my, the mother-in-law are unhappy? And, well, you wanna talk about a world where things have escalated is these weddings are just now Un, the, unbelievable, you know, you have to have the right venue and the right cake and the right flowers and the, you know, you got to, now you got to take your family and go to some exotic <laughs> location. The thing is just escalated way out of uh, yeah. control to the point where who could ever, how could you ever achieve the expectations? Because the, you know, the, the, it used to be Bride and Brides magazines, those great big volumes that were basically ads for everything in shopping, <laughs> right? Well, now it's the internet, and uh, oh my gosh, the, it, our, our expectations for the happiest day of our lives is really <laughs> way out of way out of control. Yeah, so I think for me it's more yeah seeing moments in the relationship. I don't personally see the wedding as the happiest day, even though having all the loved ones around and all of this seems like a beautiful idea i've also seen from a very realistic <laughs> outlook on other people's wedding that sometimes the fairy tale is not as <laughs> as beautiful <laughs> but i'm glad you you still mention it in in your in your list and also listening yeah. to you a lot of it comes around your work and it's something you were mentioning earlier that has been you know really interesting for you to study what motivates people to work and how we can make you know the work environment maybe a more fulfilling place how did you sort of find your way did you always know that okay i love kind of teaching and academia and this is what makes me happy this is what i'm gonna do 
or how was that sort of path for you in your yeah. younger years? Yeah. <laughs> undergrads i changed my major a couple times i think and i took a psych class and uh i did really well in it i'll be honest that you know it was a big huge 300 people class and suddenly i'm at the top of the class top ish <laughs> with the top but i was like hey i'm pretty good at this i like it and then i headed started heading down the path i also was very fortunate to have a great mentor as an undergrad mm -hmm. Dave Witsit at University of Northern Iowa, who is the best teacher I have ever known. And uh, he took me in under his wing and helped me get into graduate school. So I lucked out, there's no doubt about it, um, that I, I saw, a, I had a great role model for how great teaching could be. He was, he was very good in the classroom and I aspired mm. to be the he was but he was also very good at bringing in students and building a, a collection of students to get to know each other and become developed and i've used him as a kind of a role model for how i uh, helped build this program so there again i lucked out so i'm not going to say it was all hard work i i got lucky and psychology interesting and that, but even then, I, you know, I went into a, a graduate program thinking I would be a consultant and another advisor, a guy named Marty Chemers pulled me aside and said, hey, maybe you should think about teaching. And I thought, wow, I don't have this sort of capacity you need. To mentor <laughs> I'm not smart enough to be a faculty member. And that's probably still true. But um, I was like, well, maybe I will do that. So I've had some good guidance along the way. I, uh, mm -hmm. my advisor, uh, Terrific. Uh, well, I had two great advisors. I, this guy, Fred Herzberg, but Carol Sansone was a faculty member at the uni uh, university. And for her, from her, I learned a lot about you got to pay attention to the details. You, you got to mm. think through what you're doing. And she was careful and she's very smart. And she also served as a, as a role model for me. So I think I've really benefited from being around great people. And I'm certainly I'm not mentioning all of them that I should. But that's kind of my path to this job. Uh, you know, I wound up here in Minnesota and I said, well, I'm gonna be here for two years and then I'm going on to another place. And well, 32 years later, I'm still <laughs> <laughs> it's worked out just fine. I find that this is really great advice for people of all ages actually to have a mentor and also to have someone that you can just look up and think okay would i want to sort of be like them or do some things like them and i find that it's a lot easier than thinking oh what do i want to do with my life and what do i like what do i not like <laughs> what can i what can i do with all those choices that we are fortunate to have now um and for me it was also a bit similar of looking up in my career and thinking okay this person this is where i'm headed would i want their life Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> they are great people and they are doing an amazing job, but would I want to be like them or do what they do? No. <laughs> and having, on the contrary, other people that I find, wow, they seem to love their job and they do this, you know, with all those details in mind and with so much community in mind, um, this, you know, then you can relate or not, or you can have sort of the talent and the interest for it or not. But I find that, yeah, it's a great, uh, great way to look at it and, and great advice for people to sort of find their, their path. <laughs> yeah. All right. Last but not least question that I always love to ask people, who do you think is the happiest person uh, that you know? And it can be sort of a person that you know personally or more of a famous person or someone that you wouldn't know so well, but that you think is the happiest person that you would know. Oh, wow. That, <laughs> that's one I thought about before I, uh, before I got on here. Uh, I don't know. I know it's always the hardest question that I ask everyone. Very few people come up with something right away. And I find this very revealing. <laughs> It's hard because it, I can see different <laughs> aspects. My wife is one of the most optimistic mm -hmm. people I've ever known. And everyone would say that about her. She will see the good in anything. 
you know, I could name other people who there's a lot of laughter around them. Mm -hmm. you know, when they come into a room, people are just happier. So I often see the effect that they have on people, but I don't necessarily know whether they are the mm. happiest. Or, you know, um, I've seen some very charming people who I think <laughs> really happy because everybody likes them. So I honestly don't know if there is a happiest person. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't. <laughs> I can't. That's all right. Usually, I, I also just no. use it to yeah have also kind of a reflection around that. That usually when I ask people, okay, who is maybe the most successful person you know that you know in your network, they will have a person in mind because we have metrics maybe to identify that by society standards or maybe academic standards or all types of you know things that are easier to measure. And I find that with happiness, even when you know people very well, you can look at it from different ways. And for people that you don't know personally, you can say that they seem happy, but it's hard to know exactly how they feel themselves. Well, I can certainly tell you this. The, the wealthiest people I know are not the happiest people I know. Now, that doesn't mean they couldn't be. There's one mm. or two of them very happy, but I certainly had know plenty of mm. very wealthy very miserable people. <laughs> so you know, to come back to it, though, you can't buy your way into happiness. Uh, just having money won't do it. You really got to find opportunities to feel, to, to build. That's mm. what we are designed or we've evolved to do is build. We like to build organizations. We like to build things. We like a life where we have autonomy and we have control over our schedule and what we do and what we choose and who we're around and and we need social connections now not everybody needs the same amount but you need some so i think if you really focus on those things rather than income or status or the accumulation of material possessions you'll be much better off that's a great reminder for for everyone to think okay you can gather some money and do gather some so you can leave nice experience and choose which toothbrush you want to have or which <laughs> dryer you want to have in your life. <laughs> but don't focus too much on it at the expense of uh, yeah, building yourself, building your skills, building also your network and, and people around you. Um, do you think that this summarizes well the, the idea? Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dania. It's been such a pleasure to to chat with you. I'll just well, thank you so much. This was fun. I really enjoyed talking to you.